Well, you can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Uh, it's been a while since we've been in uh, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 20, to chapter 3, verse 4. I know they're different chapters, but I think the themes go together. We are going to see Seeking Things Above, chapter 2, verse 20, to chapter 3, verse 4. But I will read, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 11, to set the context for us. So Colossians 2, we'll begin reading at verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. But no one cheats you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concerning things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, Malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. For there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we pray that today that we would seek the things that are above where Christ is sitting at your right hand. Help us to set our mind on the things above and not on the things of this earth. And thank you that we have died to the basic principles of the world, that we are united to Christ as he has uh, died, was buried, has been raised, and he is seated at your right hand. 
Thank you that though we do not see him, we love him. Thank you that we walk by faith, yet we long for our day, the day when we will walk by sight. But thank you for the promise. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your scriptures that tell us who we are in Jesus Christ and how we ought to live as those redeemed in him. Thank you for this clarity. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your nearness to us uh, as we are united to Christ. We confess, oh God, our senses can betray us, but help us not to rely upon our senses, but rely upon what your words say. And may we cling to them by faith. May we trust in what you've said to us. May we be careful not to make the doctrines of men the doctrines of God. And may we always seek first your kingdom and thank you that we can do so in Christ Jesus. So may you be honored and glorified now as we come to your word. Speak to us in your word. Give us illumination. We pray. Thank you that you speak to us and may we hear you now. So be with us by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I remember one of the first sermons I heard when we first started attending Free Grace Baptist Church, which is our planting church. Uh, the, one of the first sermons I heard a Pastor Butler preach was on Colossians 3.1. Yeah, therefore, you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Now, I've often forgot what it is said many a times, and I'm not a perfect man. Uh, but in a lot of ways, what he said many years ago has still stuck with me ever since. So often in our Christian life, so often in the practicalities of life, we want 10 steps or 10 ways to be a better husband or wife. We want 10 steps to deal with our troubles in this world. But a lot of the times we forget Colossians 3, 1, or perhaps it's parallel, Matthew 6, 33. And while certain steps can be helpful, they can perhaps become legalistic and have no value if the, we don't have that first step in place. Namely, to seek the things that are above where Christ is, to seek first the kingdom of heaven. We must always be reminded of our source and our strength in our Christian walk. We must always be reminded that we walk in Christ Jesus. And this is what Paul has been doing throughout the book of Colossians. The heart of the book comes from Colossians 2, 6. As you therefore have received Christ, so walk in him. There were men who were threatening this. There were heretics who had come to Colossae and were saying, you don't continue in Christ. Maybe you enter in by Christ, but you have to stay in and remain in by certain laws that we deem necessary. Your salvation is predicated on not touching, not tasting, and not handling. It was a man-made religion rather than a religion that comes from Christ Jesus. And so Paul is writing to say, you are complete in Christ. In verses 11 through 15, he unpacked the benefits of being in Christ. We have died with Christ. We've buried, been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And we are seated with Christ Jesus. Our sins, all of them, are taken away in him. And then verses 16 through 20, we saw some of the problems of these false teachers concerning food and drink and various festivals, which are a shadow of the things to come. But Christ is the substance. Christ is the head. And so in chapter 2, verse 20, he's beginning to transition to the application section of his letter. How then shall we live in him based upon the status that we have in Christ Jesus? What shall our resurrection life look like as saints in this fallen world? I think the problem is clear, which we'll see in verses 20 through 23. 
namely seeking life by the old world, seeking life by the basic principles of this world, seeking life in man-made religion when we are dead to it in Christ Jesus. The problem of man-made laws is one that has been perpetual since the foundation of the world. So often we like to take our preferences and make them God's law. But in doing so, we act as God. And in doing so, we bind people's consciences when we ought not to. We all struggle with it. We all have that proclivity to it. And we all must beware and sober-minded when thinking about what is my preference and what is actually God's Law And the focus certainly we see in these verses is primarily on food, but other things can be a problem as well. And so the focus is why focus on your religion when we live freely in Christ? Why focus on man-made laws when we live freely in the Lord Jesus Christ? And so in these verses, Paul is comparing the subjection to the old world with our freedom in the new. He's comparing the fact and highlighting that he wants us to see our life is in Christ. Our life is one that is heavenly found in him. And the basis of this heavenly life, this abundant life, is based upon our union with Christ, our vital connection to him. As we walk and received him, so then walk in him. And I think there are two things that he wants us to see in these verses, and these are my considerations or points this morning. First of all, he wants us to see how we have died to the old world in verses 20 through 23 of chapter 2. But also he wants us to seek the things that are above or seek, uh, he wants us to see that we have been raised for the new world in verses 1 through 4. So dead to the old world and raised for the new world. We have died to the basic principles and we've been raised for that new world in him. So let's first look at dead to the old world in verses 20 through 23. And notice he asks the question based on everything he has said. Therefore, if you've died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? We are complete in him. Our identity is in him. There's problems with shadowy things. The ceremonial laws had a place and a purpose in the Old Testament, but they were a shadow of the things to come. They were a pointer to Christ to come. So if the substance has come, why rely upon those older things? Why have these rules and regulations of not eating certain things when Christ has come and we are free in him? Our identity we saw in 2.11, again, we've died with him, we've been buried with him, we've been raised with him. That is who we are in him. We've been, we, are, uh, we are part of him and united to him, and it gives us comfort and strength as we deal with the problems we face in this world. The basis for our Christian life and growth is our identity found in him. The basis for our life and growth individually and corporately comes from our vital union with Christ. Now, brethren, I don't always feel that vital union with Christ, but God's word says I am in him. And as we're going to see in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, our life is hidden with him. One day we shall walk by sight, but now we walk by faith. Certainly God has given us senses. We touch, we see, that sort of thing. But just because our, we don't feel or see him necessarily doesn't mean he's not working. That's why we walk by faith. 
That's why we walk trusting in what his promises say. That's why when we struggle, we have to come back to God's word. Because we are fallen, we still have remaining corruption, and sometimes we can be clouded by our feelings. And thankfully, we need to be reminded about facts, namely that we are in Christ Jesus, died, buried, and raised with him. So he's, he's driving that home. You've died with Christ, and notice what you've died from. You've died from the basic principles of this world. Now, the problem of the Colossian heresy is difficult to to glean. I think certainly there is the Greek aspect that they wanted to ascend to the, uh, to, to the being. They wanted to ascend to God by way of special knowledge, but there's also a connection with the Jewish aspect. The way in which we have that special communion with God is by way of these dietary laws. And this language of basic principles was found in verse 8. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The main problem of this heresy was it was not according to Christ. It was according to their ideas. It was according to what they said. And one phrase or uh, words uh, that Paul uses are the basic principles of this world. Now, the meaning is difficult. Certainly in the, in the Greek world, it had to do with the celestial realm. And certainly in the Greek world, they believed in spirits and they believed that you could control the spirits by engaging in certain things. So that could be a basic principle for the, there's also a Jewish aspect, which comes in Galatians four, and I think is in view in Colossians two and the Jewish aspect focusing on the dietary laws. But I, I think the main idea of basic principles highlights something that's primitive. Highlight something that's basic. Highlight something that are ABCs. When you look at someone who believes in spirits in their home, you kind of think they're primitive, right? When you look at someone who thinks that the way to salvation is whether you don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, that might be viewed as basic. And what he's saying here, I think, is a bit of a dig to these heretics. I mean, these heretics thought they were philosophers, I mean, they were puffing themselves up. Look how wonderful we are. Look at this way of salvation. Look how humble we are. But what he is saying to them is, though you think you're philosophers, in reality, you're actually kindergartners. It is basic. It is primitive. That is not the way of salvation. It doesn't matter whether you have a stake or not. That doesn't uh, affect your standing before God most high. It is basic. And if you're in Christ, You've died to it. If you're in Christ, you don't no, no longer need to be subjected to it. And so he's driving the point home to the Colossians and saying, you died with Christ to these things. Why? As though living in the world. What he's saying, if you live in the world, why, do, uh, uh, why is it that you still subject yourselves to these things? As if you lived in the world in this way. But the emphasis is on why do you subject yourselves to these things? regulations when you're free in christ and he goes on to say in verse 21 perhaps what the emphasis is of verses 21 and 22 of what they were teaching do not touch do not taste do not handle the quotes there are important it's not what paul is saying it's what these heretics are saying it's what these false teachers are saying here's the way of salvation don't touch don't taste and do not handle What they're doing is over-regulating and imposing. 
And this is something that the Pharisees have done often. This is something that is a problem that emerges in other books of the Bible. And sometimes, maybe not as a way of salvation, we can, as God's people, have our preferences and impose them on others when we ought not to. And certainly Paul addresses the idea of liberty, Christian liberty, not free to sin, not free to do whatever you want, but in things indifferent, things that are not sinful in and of themselves. Meat is not sinful in and of itself. If one wants to have some meat, great. If one doesn't want to have meat, that's perfectly fine. If one has too much meat, that is gluttony. But sober, we need to have it soberly and be self-controlled. But meat in and of itself is not a bad thing. And he goes on to talk about how some didn't want to eat meat. And so if someone doesn't want to eat meat, the one who's okay with eating meat is not supposed to despise them, right? Then there's the one who does not eat meat and looks at the one who does eat meat. They're not supposed to judge them. There is a two-way street there. Paul goes on to say in uh, Romans 14, um, uh, 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he's saying a similar thing in verse 22 of Colossians. After they say, don't touch it, don't taste it, don't even handle it. Which all concern things which perish with the using. You eat food and it's burned up. I know that's basic biology, but some people sometimes forget that and want to make it a spiritual thing, right? See how primitive it is? It's burnt up. God gives us food. God gives us sustenance for this fallen world, but it is not the means of salvation. It is not the way we earn standing before God most high. The way in which we have standing before God most high is because of Jesus Christ. And we grow in him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yes, if food causes you to sin, yeah, maybe you need to watch it. But your standing before God is not predicated on whether you have a piece of meat or not. It's based on Jesus Christ and his finished and completed work, which all concerning things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Now, there perhaps is an allusion here to Isaiah 29, 13. The people of God in the Old Testament struggled with their own man-made laws as well. They had Deuteronomy, but they didn't follow it. They forgot it. They didn't listen. Instead, they focused in on what they wanted to do rather than what God wanted to do. And sometimes people who have their preferences can make it sound godly, right? They don't always smell like sulfur, as Pastor Butler would say, or have a pitchfork, you know, at the side of the pulpit there, but they might sound holy and pious, right? And we're going to talk about false humility in just a second, but it might sound good, but in reality, it goes against God. And notice verse 13 of Isaiah 29. Therefore, the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, you guys probably have memorized that or known that one, but notice why. But have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. They think they're drawing to God in a right way, but it is only based on the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God most high. 
Remember, a lot of people in the Old Testament thought that they could worship God alongside the other Baals or alongside the Ashtoreths. They thought God was one God among many in a lot of ways. They thought certainly he was Yahweh, but they still you know, put him with all the other gods. They thought they could worship to that God and this God and that God and this one there. And they thought they could get some sort of, uh, that's the way they were mercenaries trying to get something from God to give them something, but all the other gods as well. God is a jealous God. God was to be worshipped exclusively by the people. Even in Malachi, they were supposed to, uh, the people of Israel was supposed to bring uh, um, uh, a sacrifice that had no blemish. What were they doing? Well, that one in my flock, it has no use. So I'm going to offer it to God. That's not what you're supposed to do. God requires obedience rather than sacrifice. That's why he says that. Certainly the sacrifice needs to be based on what God says, but we must obey God rather than sacrifice. Even Saul, remember? God said, destroy Agag. And then Samuel heard all the, the lowing and the goats, you know, mehing and the sheep buying. What is going on here? I desire obedience and not sacrifice. And so what Paul is doing in Colossians 2, as he alludes to Isaiah, he's highlighting that when one has a doctrine of man, what it becomes is idolatry. Beale says in the inaugurated age of fulfillment, that is Christ's coming, which has begun in Christ and will be completed and continue on when he comes again, it is idolatry to substitute the shadows for Christ, who is their eschatological substance. When the, when the substance has come, it is idolatry to go look uh, to for uh, uh, our communion with God by way of ceremonial laws. It, was, it had a place in Israel's history, but has become an idol for them. This happens with Stephen, one of Stephen's charges against Israel. They made the temple an idol. God is the temple. Christ is the temple. Christ is that end time tabernacle. We don't need that physical temple anymore. We have communion with God through Christ and by the spirit. See how they can take a good thing and make it a bad God. You and I do that too. We take good things and make them bad gods, but they took a good thing. They took the ceremonial laws. They took the temple and they made it an idol. They didn't understand its proper place in history and even you know, again, preferentially, if one doesn't want to have meat or not, that's fine. But to make it a religious thing is to go against God and his word and the fulfillment that is found in Christ. So it's of the doctrines of men, commandments of men. And he goes on to say, verse 23, these things have no value. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Again, they sound holy and pious and everything's great. Notice how one who is sinful isn't not necessarily one who's in the world, right? It could be one who looks holy and pious, <laughs> but in reality, they're worldly because they're focusing in on G, uh, focusing on themselves rather than Jesus Christ. He calls it a self-imposed religion. Would-be idiosyncratic, do-it-yourself religion rather than focusing in on what God has commanded has an appearance, but it is self-imposed. Notice it's a false humility. This comes up in verse 18. And remember, they were they, they uh, thought that you could seek God by way of the angels, and so they worshipped angels, and it would have come across in a holy and pious way. 
They would have said, we cannot approach unto God. So we're going to come to angels instead. That sounds great. But in reality, it is wrong and wretched and goes against what God has said. We have a high priest, and through that high priest, we can boldly approach to God. We're not supposed to worship angels. And so um, it is a false humility. And even when people say, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, again, it can sound great. But in reality, it is arrogance. In reality, it is wicked. In reality, um, it can lead to a false humility. And again, sometimes this, not sometimes, this comes up a lot in spiritual things, I think, for us. At least I struggle with it. I'm sure you struggle with these things. Well, I'm not saying we're these heretics. I'm just saying in our remaining corruption, we can struggle with a false humility. I like to think that the one, the person in the world who's the most humble doesn't have to tell everybody that they are the most humble in the world. You all know that one of my pet peeves, probably my biggest pet, maybe not my biggest, but one of my biggest pet peeves is social media and devotions. Everybody posting and saying, look what I'm reading. Great. You have to tell everybody about it. Why don't you just tell the whole world what you're doing? Look how humble I am by reading God's word. Can we just read God's word without anybody knowing about it? Do we have to tell everybody what we are doing? You see, we want people to know what we are doing. I don't know about you, but sometimes as well, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I got a caveat what I'm about to say um, by saying, I'm just going to say it and then I'm going to explain it. Do you ever see have some have, you ever have this happen to you where sometimes people trump you by saying, I prayed about it? See, brethren, I think we should pray about things. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about things. I think we should pray about things. Do you ever have sometimes people go, I prayed about it as a trump over you? Do you ever have people say, I prayed about it as a way to excuse their sin? Or another one is, I have peace about it. Oh, you do? Really? But what does God's word say? You see, tonight we're going to see how Jonah had peace. He was sleeping in the boat while there's a storm happening. Peace is not a sign that it is from God. We must trust what God's word has said. We must be careful we don't act all holy and pious and humble in front of everybody because we all struggle with pride. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying don't pray. Please understand that. I'm not saying don't go pray. You don't have to tell everybody about it. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. And it doesn't have to be a trump card just to get your way or my way. So false humility comes up a lot. And then, and then he says again in 23, neglect of the body. This probably has to do with fastings and prayers. Again, brethren, I think there is a place for fasting. Just don't tell everybody about it. I mean, the monks were notorious for thinking they were better than everybody because they didn't eat for five days, right? Again, don't tell anybody if you're going to do it. And don't think you're better than anybody just because you fast. I remember years ago attending a church. First of all, the lady was a, the, the pastor was a woman. So that should have been a red flag for me. And then she was doing a 40-day fast. But she was telling everybody about it. I mean, brethren, that's not right. You see, again, we make spiritual things a, it can be a, pri a source of pride for us. And so they were doing that. We struggle with that in our own ways, but these ones were saying, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, self-imposed, false humility, neglect of the body. And notice what he says at the end in verse 23, but are of no value 
against the indulgence of the flesh. We don't find and secure our complete satisfaction with these things, but it comes in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we don't eat food. I'm not saying we don't starve. What I'm saying is that is not where our satisfaction lies. It is found in and only in Christ Jesus. Davenant says, because the end or use of meats is designed by God himself for bodily sustenance, not for the sanctification of souls. For it was his pleasure that they should be consumed in the very use, not that we should expect from them the spiritual fruits of righteousness, holiness, and merit. That only comes from Jesus Christ. And so what he is saying here and what he's teaching us is that the doctrines of men equal subjection to the world. I've hit it hard already. The problem of our inherent desire to be fundamentalists, our inherent desire to take our preferences and impose to be arrogant about those very things like the Pharisees. Look how much money I'm given. Look at me. I'm fasting. Look at me when I pray. Look how loud I can pray. Those sorts of things. Again, we ought to pray, we ought to give, there are times for fasting, but we ought to do so with a God and spirit wrought humility. And sometimes even then, the praying and the fasting can be under this plea of, well, it's how we worship God. Yes, we ought to pray and fast. We ought not to do so in a way that burdens people. Calvin says, talking about the doctrines of men, they tie you up at the beginning that they may strangle you afterwards. Isn't that what they do? It's just a noose getting tighter around your neck as burden upon burden upon burden is heaped up. Christ has taken away our sin and we are free in him. And so we have to be careful when we violate conscience in our, as we speak with others, we have to be careful. We are not subjecting people to man's law rather than, uh, uh, rather than uh, so, uh, uh, imposing and talking about God's law upon them. So certainly examples are food. Certainly I've talked about the examples of spirit in the spiritual aspects or some of them anyway, but there are many others that we could talk about evangelism. Brother and I believe in evangelism. I believe we should share the gospel with others, but how that's done can be, you know, there's liberty in that, right? Not everybody has to go out onto the street. If that's your way of doing evangelism, more power to you. But just because someone does that does not mean they're less than you, right? We have to be careful with that. Evangelism can be that way. We can look down upon people. Service, if you're not part of a ministry, you somehow are the devil. At least that's uh, my experience in some churches. If you didn't serve 15 different ways on every night of the week, you were somehow less of a Christian. See, brother, what about what about the home? What about families? What about, you know, the 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 children parents have to raise or the parents have to raise as we're going to see that is going to be the christian life we have to be very careful because the doctrines of men equal subjection to the basic principles of this world and thankfully in christ we've died to them so that's how we've died to the old world let's then look secondly at how we are raised for the new world in verses one through four again there's that contrast died with christ raised with him which again is connected with chapter 2, verse 12, buried with him and raised through faith in the working of God. The emphasis here is that we now are raised with Christ. We certainly await our heavenly bodies, but the, we have a changed heart. 
The spirit has been poured out, that agent of new creation. The spirit indwells us now, and we have freedom and strength and power from Christ in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a resurrection life now that we live. There's a foretaste of the resurrection life to come when our bodies are raised. And so then what he is saying, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on this earth. What he is doing here is unpacking what the heavenly life is. He's unpacking what abundant life is. He's unpacking the life we ought to live as one who are found in Christ and raised with him. So why focus on the ceremonial laws? Why focus on man-made traditions when you focus on Christ? We need to set our mind upon him. Or as Matthew 6, says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Again, so often in our modern world, people want practical, right? want 10 steps for how to be a better you and they don't want theology they think theology is just all headspace and it's just doctrine and it's just all intellectual notice what precedes right practice we have to know who christ is we have to know what he has done for us and we have to know who we are in him before we engage in our practice All of Paul's letters are structured this way. Here's the theology. Here's the practice. I mean, it's how the Bible works. This is our Christ. This is who we are. He is the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead and we in him. And here's how you then live as one who's been resurrected in and by him. You can't have practice without theology. And notice Christ, we seek him where he is seated at the right hand of God. I really hope as soon as you heard seated at the right hand of God, you thought Psalm 110. Psalm 110 about the king who rules and reigns, the priest whose order is forever. And perhaps we need to see both the kingly office and priestly office of Christ in view here and what that means for us now. It highlights how he reigns overall. It highlights how he is at the right hand of God. He is the one who communes with God. And we commune with God in him through our high priest. That is, we have access to him who is our temple. And we have access through that temple to God. Again, temple plays a role here. These heretics thought that you could have communion with God by their dietary laws. And what Paul is saying is you have communion with God in Jesus Christ. And notice it's the human nature that is emphasized. Yes, the Lord Jesus is fully God and fully man, but a man is at the right hand of God the Father. Our high priest is at the right hand of God the Father, and our communion with God is based upon his finished work, and he still intercedes and prays for us now. That's why we call him our advocate in 1 John chapter 2. See, brethren, it's based upon his finished work, but you're still going to commit sins, right? I'm sorry to admit that or to tell you that, but we're still going to commit sins. And the beauty is not only the sins we have committed and are committing, but the sins we will commit are forgiven. And the reason they are forgiven is because of Christ's finished work, but also because of his praying for us now. And we have our life in him. 
We have forgiveness in him. We have strength found in him. Davenant says, since God has no bodily right hand, by this sitting is signified that Christ as man, having accomplished the work of redemption, is not only endowed with immortality and perfect blessedness, but is raised to heaven, placed above all creatures, Lord, governor, and just of the whole world, and especially constitute the most glorious and powerful king and patron of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of all principality and power. Christ is making all his enemies his footstool. Why would you go back to bulls and goats? Why would you go back to dietary laws? The substance has come and the substance is reigning and you with him seek the things that are above. Then he goes on to say in verse two, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Now we still live on this earth and do things that will only be of this world, even if they aren't sinful. But what he's saying here is our primary pursuit should be the heavenly things. Uh, as we've been raised with Christ, our focus on those things, uh, our focus should be on those things that are of the new creation to help us as we live in this creation. We ought to reflect, set our mind. We ought to ponder and think and read what God has said. And hopefully as our mind, uh, uh, we, as we read these things, our affections are stirred to the things that are right and good. And we lay hold of those blessed things that he has given to us. Our affections ought to be fixed upon it. Davenant says this does not forbid the use of earthly things, but we shouldn't make those earthly things our every labor, desiring earthly things in every way without measure. I'm not saying don't work hard. He's going to talk about working hard and a little bit in chapter three. But the point is that the first thing we seek is the kingdom of God. The first thing we seek is to set our mind upon the things that are above, because that is where our life is, not on the things of this earth. Verse three, for you have died with them, building upon what he said at the end of chapter two, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, this is difficult. What does it mean that our life is hidden with Christ in God? Well, perhaps what he is saying here is akin to saying you walk by faith now, not by sight. The, the idea of hidden here can carry the idea of security, although I think there's a contrast between what we don't see and what we will see with verse 4. Our life is now hidden with Christ, but it will be appearing in verse 4. That is, in the life we now lead before Christ comes back or before we die is a life of faith. The truth is we are raised with him, but as I said, we don't always feel like that very thing. It's akin to what Peter says. We don't see Christ, but we love him. We don't see the resurrection life, but we are raised with him. Now, thankfully, as we grow in, in, in knowledge and in truth in Christ and our, uh, we bear fruit, that's an example and evidence that we are saved, but we lay hold of the truth we lay hold of Christ by faith. We don't always see everything, right? We don't always see everything unfolding. We don't know, always see the resurrected life, but we are resurrected in and with him. And the reason that's so important is in contrast with the false teaching that was prevalent. You see, every teaching and every religion that teaches the way of salvation by works is a teaching that is tangible right? 
You may not taste food or you might taste food, but I don't see Christ. That's why people wanted to go back to bulls and goats, because you could see the blood craning from the neck. You could see that thing being burnt up. You could see, even when we uh, engage in our, if, if salvation is by my working, yes, I did this today, there's a, you know, a, you know, there's one coin on the good scale, right? You see, it's tangible for us. But thankfully, we come by faith and not by sight. We believe on what God has said in his word. This is what he has said, and we walk by faith. I think that is what is going on when he says, uh, what he says there, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are there with him by faith and by, uh, by our union with him. But we do not yet see it. But thankfully, we will. Verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, he is the life of his people, then you also will appear with him in glory. We live by faith in our resurrected identity with Christ now. We have this hope that when he comes again, our faith will be made sight. What he has begun in us will be revealed fully on that day. Everything shall be made clear on that day, including our glorying with Christ because of what he has done for us. Why in the world would you exchange that for basic principles? Here's who you are. Here's what you are. Here's what shall happen. Why would you forfeit that when you have this by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And he will unpack how we live in light of that, beginning at verse 5. And he's going to pack the heavenly life that we live. Uh, but suffice it to say, for now, the doctrine of Christ equals freedom in the world to come. Our resurrection life starts now with thinking about resurrection things. We must ask ourselves what pleases God, what pleases him. And what's interesting is the way in which we grow is by knowing his word, being filled with his word, and being under his word. You see, what pleases God is being faithful to what he has said through the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he says about the heavenly life that we now lead. Notice what it looks like. It's a well-ordered family unit. It is dying to sin day by day and growing into the image of Christ. Notice not everyone needs to be a missionary or a pastor to be living a heavenly life now. I'm not against missionaries or pastors, but notice this heavenly life is so very mundane and when it comes to the Christian walk. And notice, too, how important the church is. Christ is the head. Paul is a minister who proclaims Christ. How do we live the resurrection life? Verse 16 of chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with the grace of the Lord in your hearts. You see, what he's saying here is if you struggle with something, I'm not saying you can't try and put that sin away, but the first thing you need to do is fill your mind with the word. And the first thing you need to do is attend church. The reason I say that so often, dear brethren, is because I know I sound like a broken record. I know I sound like a legalist, perhaps, but God says, do not forsake the something of ourselves. You want to know why? 
He nurses us and strengthens us with his word. When we try to live the Christian life not being under his word, it's like heavy lifting on an empty stomach. It's like running a marathon on it without any sort of energy to help you with that. You see, God nourishes us and strengthens us with his word. That's what stuck with me, with what Pastor Butler said. You're struggling with this sin. Yes, cut it off. Yes, deal with it. But the first thing you need to do is be at church. How many people I've heard over the years and even before being a pastor, I struggle with this. I struggle with that. I want these 10 ways. And then, then I realize I'm looking around on Sunday. They're not at church. They're not at the place they need to be to grow in their Christian walk. I'm not saying there still isn't going to be hardship. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But God has given us his means of grace for a purpose. And you do yourself a disservice by not assembling together and being under his word. And if you want to be a better wife, be under the word. Want to be a better husband, be under the word. Want to be a better parent? Be under the word. Want to be a better child? Be under the word. Want to be a better worker? Be under the word. Want to be a better boss? Be under the word. The heavenly life Paul unpacks here looks different than what is so emphasized in our modern evangelical church. The abundant life isn't primarily jet setting halfway around the world, but a wife honoring and respecting her husband instead of tearing him down. It is a husband who is in a deadbeat spiritually and when it comes to leading the home, spiritually and financially and emotionally leading the home. That's what we want to see, one who leads, or perhaps one who recognizes his wife as the weaker vessel, as Paul says, and is gracious and kind and forgiving. Perhaps the abundant life is when parents encourage their children rather than provoke them. I mean, that's what... He says in chapter 3, verse verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And the abundant life really is showing up on a Sunday, even when you don't want to, that you might hear him who is proclaimed, that he might dwell in you richly. That is what we need. We need to set our mind on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above and not on the things of this world. If you're bogged down, if you're heavy laden, if you're struggling, come and hear about Christ. Come and be reminded about Christ. Come and hear about who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've died to the basic principles and you've been raised with him. Set your mind on the things that are above. Now, if you're an unbeliever, This world is passing away, but there is life in Christ. Will you die with the world? Will you believe on Christ? Seek the heavenly things by faith, and you shall be raised with Christ in heaven now and raised with Christ on that final day. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, please forgive us for making our preferences your law. And please forgive us for not uh, using the means that you've given us to grow in grace and knowledge. Thank you for the gift that your word is. Thank you for the time in which we live where we have Bibles galore. But please forgive us for not reading them as we should, not listening to them as we ought, and even neglecting uh, the gathering of your people to hear your word preached. 
Thank you for the growth that you give. Thank you for the patience and long suffering that you have towards us. And it takes us so long to grasp and understand the importance of your means and your word. So we ask that it would dwell in us richly. We ask that we would encourage and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, uh, that we would appreciate what this means to come and be part of the church, that we are the members of the church, and Christ is the head of the church, and he is the one we ought to proclaim. Thank you that we are complete and finished in him, and as we received him, may we walk in him. Help us to be on guard against our own sins. Help us to be on guard against our own preferences and help us to be ever watchful in this Christian life in which you've given to us. Thank you that Christ shall come again. Thank you that our life is hidden with him now. And thank you that we shall see him by sight when he comes again. Thank you we shall be honored and glorified with him when he comes again, not because of anything that is good within us, but because you are gracious and merciful and he is our mighty king. Thank you that he is making his enemies his footstool. Thank you that you make his people willing in the day of your power. And thank you that you have the the fruit of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Thank you that that includes wretched sinners like us. And we long for Christ to come and usher in the new heavens and new earth. But even now, give us strength day by day to honor you and glorify you, knowing that we have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and been raised with Christ. So help us now by your spirit to seek the things that are above where Christ is at your right hand and help us to do this in a way that is honoring to you. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.